from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Well, our college roadshow is in cyclone country this week. We're bringing you the show from Iowa State University, and here's what we'll dig into over the next 60 minutes. Identifying the good pests from the bad. Early next year, uh, we will be able to identify around 4,000 insect pests, which is a huge number. An app that could be a game changer for pest control. A living experiment rooted in Iowa fields. One of our biggest things is we want to understand how soybeans are actually reacting to those higher than optimal temperatures. And the end game could be heat tolerant soybeans. The latest announcement from the Fed and if signs of a recession could still hit commodity markets. And in John's world. Have a safe harvest means more than it used to. The 2022 U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow from Iowa State University is brought to you exclusively by Bex. From farmers' first pass in the field to the final one at harvest, it's a game plan rooted in faith and belief. Bex Hybrids is with you every turn because both on and off the field, we're all farmers at heart. See why at BexHybrids.com. Well, some absolute beautiful fall-like weather for our college roadshow this week. But a lot of news to cover. As Russia's war against Ukraine escalates, the White House announces additional funding it says will help strengthen global food security. President Biden making the announcement of almost $3 billion in additional aid while addressing the U.N. General Assembly. It includes $2 billion. It set aside for global humanitarian assistance through USAID. The rest, $783 million, will fund global development assistance, such as efforts to help small farmers boost their productivity in places such as sub-Saharan Africa. Money through USDA for eight new school feeding projects that could help feed nearly a million children in Africa and East Asia. Another $178 million would go to support climate smart agriculture and $150 million for the Global Agriculture and Food Security Program. Through USAID's Feed the Future initiative, the United States is scaling up innovative ways to get drought and heat resistant seeds into the hands of farmers who need them while distributing fertilizer and improving fertilizer efficiency so that farmers can grow more while using less. And we're calling on all countries to refrain from banning food exports or hoarding grain while so many people are suffering. Since Russia's February invasion of Ukraine, the U.S. has provided more than $6 billion in humanitarian assistance and $2.3 billion in development aid to fight hunger and bolster food security. The Russian president has threatened to limit exports of Ukrainian grain from the Black Sea as more ships carrying ag product continue to leave ports. So far, more than 180 ships carrying more than 4 million metric tons of ag products have now left Ukraine. It's part of the deal worked out between the UN, Turkey, Russia and Ukraine. Now, Ukraine, traditionally a major global grain producer and exporter, shipped up to 6 million tons of grain per month before the war. I think we're all surprised how much they've actually been able to export, um, but they're getting a lot of interest. We've heard that they've discounted prices and they almost need to for um, the talk that we're hearing about insurance and ship shipping rates going through that area. The country is also planning for next season. So far, Ukraine has sown just under 10% of its winter wheat acreage for 2023 harvest. That's according to its ag ministry. Total acres are still expected to be smaller than usual due to the ongoing conflict. 
Globally, though, the conflict in Ukraine, two years of La Nina, and now drought stress across major growing regions of the world has worldwide crop supplies tight. According to a report from the Wall Street Journal, executives at some of the U.S. largest agribusinesses say the short supplies will require at least two more years of good harvests in the Western Hemisphere to ease the pressure. And even as harvest picks up pace, the latest USDA forecast puts corn production 8% below 2021. Futures prices for wheat are up roughly 17% over the past 12 months. Corn prices up about 28% and soybeans 14% higher in that time. Today, the FOMC raised its policy interest rate by three quarters of a percentage point. And we anticipate that ongoing increases will be appropriate. Well, the Federal Reserve making history this week, approving a third consecutive 75 basis point hike. The supersize hike takes the central bank's benchmark lending rate to a new trade range of 3 to 3.25 percent. That is the highest the Fed funds rate has been since the global financial crisis in 2008. It was largely anticipated by the market, but the key is what's next. Looks like the Fed's signaling that they need to keep raising rates. We Inflation's a problem not only in the United States, but all over the world. So the Fed sent the signal they're raising rates 0.75 and they're planning on raising another 0.75 here in a few months. Officials also updated economic forecasts for the first time since June, showing a more forceful path ahead than previously anticipated to curb 40-year highs in inflation. And now economists are warning of a recession. And a big trade announcement for producers here in Iowa. Members of a Taiwanese trade mission signing letters of intent this week to buy more Iowa corn and soybeans. Taiwan committed to buy between 96 and 107 million bushels of soybeans and 59 million bushels of corn. Those purchases would be made next year and the year following and would be valued at around $2.6 billion. Taiwan is Iowa's 12th largest trading partner. All right, that's it for the news. Well, the weather making a sudden switch here in Iowa as farmers saw the heat index climb above 100 degrees earlier this week. But it's not that way today. We'll have a check of your weather with Matt Yurisavik next. Well, time now for a check of weather with meteorologist Matt Yurisavik. Cy and I doing that this week. Matt, a cold front hit, hitting here in Iowa. Just as we got to Iowa State, it also brought some chances of moisture, but high heat really remained parked across the south to end the week after we saw record-breaking temps across the country. Matt, I'm just saying 100 degrees in September. It did not feel like fall earlier this week. Yeah, time. that's right. Those triple-digit heat values right across the middle part of the country, and that's where it's been extremely dry. Nebraska down to Kansas, even parts of Texas and Oklahoma getting in on some of that heat. And it's still going to be warm across the south, not record-breaking, but still will be warm, and that's going to continue to dry things out as most of the precipitation likely going to be off to the east as we head through this week. Still, again, extremely dry on that drought monitor all the way back into parts of California and into uh, Nevada and Utah as well. Just slight improvements across the deep south and into parts of Texas. Not much else going on there. Still abnormally dry portions of the Great Lakes and up and down the east coast mid-Atlantic into interior portions of the northeast. So something that we'll continue to keep an eye on and here as well as it could still continue to get drier as more again precipitation off to the east heading through this week. And we could be tracking a tropical system here and that uh, could show up right down here 
here in the Gulf of Mexico somewhere heading through the latter half of this week. Something that we really need to keep an eye on. You can kind of see that there showing up on the jet stream. It's going to be warm and muggy in the west and a little bit cooler air moving into the Great Lakes and parts of the northeast. But overall, still going to be warm and dry through the middle of the country and for most of the western United States. Here's a look at Monday. Cold front sliding down across the Gulf Coast. May have a few showers in southern Texas and southern Florida. Otherwise, storm system exiting the Great Lakes and moving that moisture through parts of the northeast as well. Otherwise, warm across the north, hot and muggy in the south. And then as we head toward Wednesday, we'll be starting to keep an eye down in the Gulf of Mexico for a system moving up our way. Just a little bit of scattered shower activity going on there in the west. Otherwise, mild in the east, staying very warm back in the west. And again, this is where we got to keep an eye on as we head towards Thursday and into Friday. The, uh, we got to be watching the tropics for a potential tropical system that could be moving its way right now. Many models showing it along the east, but could be anywhere from east Texas all the way into the panhandle there of Florida. And then moisture could move its way into the eastern U.S. Not much else going on. A few scattered showers back in the west and a warm front moving through the northern plains could bring a few more showers. But overall this week staying very warm in the west and then we're going to be a little bit below average in the east. That kind of pattern bringing in the cooler air from central Canada and we're also going to be mostly dry along much of the country. We're going to be keeping an eye on that tropical moisture here in the east and a few showers back in the Four Corners region. And then as we head into next week as well, very warm through much of the country just keeping things right near normal in much of the east and then the precipitation still keeping an eye on the southeast coast. Meanwhile, much of the same heading into next week. Time back to you. Thanks, Matt. Well, recession talk, Russia announcing plans to ramp up its attack against Ukraine. How could all of that impact commodity markets now that harvest is gearing up in states like here in Iowa? Iowa State Ag Economists join us for our marketing roundtables next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend, our college road show from right here at Iowa State University and excited for our ag economists on the panel this weekend. Let's start by talking about the supply side, both on the grain side and on the livestock side. And Lee, I'll, I'll start with you because I think it was a year ago when we were here, we started talking about, you know, the possibility that we would see this hog herd decline. PERS had a bigger impact than we initially thought. I mean, it was just starting really to enter the markets. But now a year later, have we seen those numbers recover? I think it, what we've seen is that's come to fruition, the, the decline in the supply. And, and really, you could characterize it as a bit of a retrenching in the industry uh, where we, we've seen, I think, a, a taking a step back um, and seeing the supply side really take a breath here and adjust to the higher cost scenario that we're all facing. We're, we're seeing disease pockets out there that's impacting productivity. Um, and there's really not a lot of incentive to expand at this point. And so that's why I think you're seeing these supplies really hold tight um, and waiting for the markets to react to either higher prices or maybe taking a step back in costs. So 
is there though still some disease out there that is impacting these numbers or do you think it really is just the cost side of the equation that is having the bigger impact on the on supply? Well, I think it's a combination of a lot of factors. When you when you look at the, the pig save per litter, those numbers would suggest there is still some, some disease pressure out there. What we've typically seen is about a one to one and a half percent year over year increase. We're at still a half percent. So I think some of that can be attributed to disease. Some of that I think is really the labor constraint we're facing and impacts potentially there. Um, and so this that's something to really watch going forward is I think what what we could see from an expansion is one, the productivity takeoff as well as the breeding herd takeoff as well. Well, on the grain side, Chad, I mean, we saw a little bit of harvest taking place on our way over here, but not a lot in Iowa. We knew that would be the case. It was a late planting season, but are you having any early harvest reports and how are they faring across Iowa that we know is a very mixed bag when it comes to yields this year? I was going to say, Iowa's like the nation in that respect. So if you go to the west, you're going to see your weaker yields as we look out there. If we go to the east, we've got some folks that I know, especially east central, may be looking at the best crop they've ever seen. So we are seeing a lot of challenges when we're looking at how much yield variability is going to be across the, the nation and across the state here. So as you look at some of those areas that maybe are struggling a little bit when it comes to yields, yet those that maybe we have an oversupply, how is basis responding? So basis is going to try to, if you will, spread that crop out more evenly. And so just like we saw last year and we're seeing it going to see again this year, we see basis fairly positive here as we end, you know, going into the harvest season. We'll see that go negative again as the crop rolls in and then it's going to strengthen again as we move through the spring into the early summer of next year. Again, trying to pull that crop back towards where we have the weakest yields. So those that are harvesting right now and trying to weigh, okay, do I go ahead and just sell cash off the combine or do I need to take advantage, hold it and, and, and really wait and, and see what happens with these futures markets? What's your advice? Okay, if they're bringing it in right now today, yeah, take advantage of the basis levels we've still got out there. If I'm a week or two from now though, I'm probably sitting on my hands and planning for how long do I want to hold on to this crop and allow that basis to improve back up again as we move through the course of the marketing year. Okay, so if we do see strong basis continue, if we do see commodity prices at least hold at these levels that we've been seeing the past month, from a livestock side, it doesn't seem like we're having any incentive anytime soon to rebuild these, these numbers, Lee. No, and I think really you're, you're seeing that when you look at cattle numbers, it's really changed producers' production decisions. We put a lot more cattle on feed a lot earlier uh, than we typically do because uh, regions were dealing with drought. Um, so we just had a lack of availability of feed to, to bring those feeder cattle up to heavier weights. You're also seeing more heifers go on feed. And I think that's the big factor that's changing the trajectory of this cattle herd. Whereas we're gonna see more feeder cattle in the short term because of those feeder heifers on feed, but longer term, that means we're going much more reductions in that cattle herd. And real quick, we're having the discussion before we see the, or the, the cattle on feed report come out on Friday, but what are these expectations now versus in a couple months when we could maybe see some of this liquidation really start to impact the numbers? I think expectations are cattle on feed numbers are staying close to year ago levels, but we're going to start to see those placement numbers come below year ago levels. And that means that going forward, those cattle on feed numbers will continue to tighten. Um, and that's what the futures market is pricing in. As you look at next spring of those of fed cattle market, much higher prices reflecting those much tighter supplies. 
All right, well, on the demand side, there was some good news this week out from China, but also some question marks when we look at the policy from the Fed, as well as what's going on in, in, in Russia and Ukraine. So I want to get both of your perspective on that coming up. But first, we need to take a quick break, and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Bond Report. Well, we saw a little harvest happening in Iowa this week on our way to Iowa State. But with most of the crop planted late, harvest is also late. And the John has a reminder as you do hit the fields this fall. A year like 2022 means the usual impatience we experienced to get started was intensified. I've talked about the technological leap we've made with our machinery. The hours Aaron spent reading manuals and tapping through screens finally has a chance to be put in play. This year had an additional familiar but mildly anxious aspect. We really had no idea about what soybean yields would be after this summer's weather. We're pretty sure, like the Pro Farmer Tour participants and various other observers, corn yields aren't going to be the record-setting type around here at least. But as I mentioned before, this is the only time you can get a good estimate of how a bean crop will turn out when you harvest those first acres. The two factors intermingle though. The first yield readouts are always suspect until calibration is completed and comparison with elevator numbers are in hand. But with a totally new system, there's always that nagging suspicion some setting is off or a calibration number was overlooked. Even then, if the numbers are significantly different from your hopes or your fears, it's only after several acres and truckloads that any real confidence in what we're seeing settles in. But today we could address those concerns. So we were ready to tackle these fields, except a funny thing happened. We took a last minute trip to see grandchildren on the East Coast. And when we came home, we had more than just our dirty laundry. And we found out the next morning that we had earned two stripes on our COVID test. Jen and I are now halfway through the self-isolating and have, for the most part, endured the, the rather mild symptoms. Well, not that mild, fairly unpleasant symptoms of COVID, which is like a really bad cold but it could have been much, much worse. So when I say to you, I hope you have a great start to harvest and I hope you have good yields and I hope you're safe. I mean more than just around the machinery. I mean around the people. Thanks, John. And I hope you're feeling better this weekend. Well, when we come back, some classic iron machinery, Pete. He has tractor tails next. Hey folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. This week we're off to Iowa to check out a Massey 135 that's a real workhorse on the farm. I'm not sure exactly when my grandpa bought this one, but I'm pretty sure he's had it since it was pretty much brand new. And I'm not sure if he bought it with a loader on it or if that's something they bought and added on themselves, but it's been a workhorse its whole life. It's got the four cylinder gas in it. It's got a little bit of a miss, needs 
some motor work. Still does the job, so that's really the important thing. It's hauled a lot of manure over the years. It's hauled a lot of trees over the years, too. It's been a damn good tractor. Remember as a kid with this one, uh, riding around, and he'd raise, sit in the bucket, and he'd raise the bucket up as high as it'd go, and lower it back down, and that was always a good time. So I definitely remember that. So I've got a picture from when I was real little, sitting on Grandpa's lap, and you know, just riding around with him. That's, whenever we go to Grandma and Grandpa's house, that's one thing we always did, is to just ride around on his lap, on tractors. <laughs> Grandpa passed away, and it, it sat in the machine shed for quite a few years, and I think about three years ago, I asked my grandma about it, if I could have it, and, and she said, well, yeah, you can probably have it. It's rightfully yours. Thanks, Greg. Well, the high heat earlier this week was another reminder of how brutal the temps were in the Western Corn Belt this summer. But students and researchers are teaming up here at Iowa State to create an environment to explore heat-tolerant soybeans. We'll show you how it's being done next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. The 2022 U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow from Iowa State University is brought to you exclusively by Bex. From farmers first pass in the field to the final one at harvest, it's a game plan rooted in faith and belief. Bex Hybrids is with you every turn because both on and off the field, we're all farmers at heart. See why at BexHybrids.com. Welcome back. Well, the main argument of Pro Farmer Crop Tour in August seemed to be if it was the heat or the drought that caused more damage to yields in some areas of the Midwest. But researchers here are teaming up with students to create a unique environment. And the end game is to ultimately breed soybeans that are more tolerant to heat. Ten miles west of Ames, Iowa, you'll find farm fields that are planted in robust research. One of the major goals is developing soybeans that we have that they're more tolerant to heat stress. A joint project between the Department of Agronomy and the Department of Mechanical Engineering, students and faculty have produced this. We were getting the group to come together to build these sort of mobile units that can be placed in the field. The intention is that we um, want to test the response of different plants under different heat or temperatures. These innovative in-field research chambers were developed by mechanical engineering capstone students. The real engineering goes into the sensors and controls that we put inside the greenhouse to, to change the climate conditions. Through sensors that measure both the inside and outside temperatures, it's also able to control the humidity level. It simulates the increasing temperature gradients we expect with climate change so they can set various different conditions. Then the control system will monitor that humidity level and the temperature and exchange outside air uh, in place of the inside air and if necessary, add heat to dry the air out. Those mobile units, they are semi-autonomous. We're controlling temperature, humidity, air movement, and essentially they are phenotyping units. 
Crops like corn are already heavily studied to determine how the plants respond to heat stress, but soybeans are still a bit of a mystery. One of our biggest things is we want to understand how soybeans are actually reacting to those higher than optimal temperatures. What is going on with them? What can we visibly notice? And then developing tools so we can more easily identify the plants that are more susceptible versus tolerant to those heat stresses. 2022 did bring some high heat in Iowa, but that's not the case every year. So this research chamber will allow researchers to test soybean plants response to heat in an actual field year after year. The problem is it's not easy for us to simulate heat stress in a field in the Midwest, especially in like Iowa or the nor more northern Midwestern states. So we can work in growth chambers and greenhouses, but that doesn't always translate to how the plants actually perform in the field and having actual living soil. From there, they can then uncover the genetics behind how and why the plants respond to heat stress. Ideally, we want it to be four degrees Celsius warmer inside than it is outside. With a living experiment rooted in these fields, the end game could breed soybean varieties that are heat tolerant. We can't do it in one year, but hopefully in the next five to 10 years that there would start being benefits for farmers. With funding from USDA, the Iowa Soybean Association and others, the work is searching for solutions. We work on plant-based protein crops, we work on millets, we work on a lot of different crops. We are interested to see how this type of uh, solution can help you know, other folks working in, in different crops. Farming for the future by harvesting answers today. Work that starts with students who are putting their skills to the test. Now they say there are still a few kinks in the system that need to be worked out. The Capstone students this semester are already making headway working on that. Well, we need to take a quick break and then we'll have more from our ag economists here at Iowa State University as our college roadshow continues next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Well, we focused a lot on the supply side of the equation in the first roundtable. So now let's look at demand. Uh, some, some fairly good news on the demand front from China this week when we got some export numbers. Soybeans pretty good on the meats too. But, but Chad, when you look at soybeans versus corn, do you think that the pace can continue with soybeans? And are you worried about corn at this point? I'm worried about corn at this point. Beans, yeah, we're up now about 10% year over year. Corn's down by 50%. So we've seen a dramatic pullback, especially from China, and we're not getting a lot of chatter that way that we're gonna see uh, additional growth there. We are getting some from places like Taiwan, Mexico, but China would be the big one as far as pushing us to better levels as we look out at the corn market. Does this surprise you a little bit just based on the global grain situation and the thought that we would see some folks come to the U.S. maybe to fulfill some of those needs? I mean, we know soybeans, we're going to have some, some stiff competition from places like South America, but does the corn situation right now on the export side surprise you a little bit? A, a little bit, not a lot. And it goes back to when you think about the corn wheat sort of debate worldwide. We have seen the wheat numbers overall globally rising over the past few months. That's taking some of the pressure off of the corn market when it comes to exports. I know it's really early to talk about acreage and I'm not gonna get into it much, but when you look at some of the, the, the rain that we saw in the Southern Plains specifically, Texas hearing some of that wheat seed that they planted, maybe sprouting a little bit, cotton prices 
aren't doing very well, good right now compared to some of the other commodities. So is it possible that we are gaining some wheat acres and, and things as we speak? Yeah, I think we will see some gain in those wheat acres, especially as we do look at the Southern Plains. We also saw some recovery in the Northern Plains as well this past year. So when you think about spring wheat up there, we saw a little bump that way. Wheat is gaining as we look out there. And a lot of that is tied to what's happening with the war in Ukraine. Well, I know even you know this spring when we were talking about a possible recession, that really the meat sector was what was the most concerned by a lot of economists, Lee. So, you know, is that kind of already baked into prices right now? We're hearing that recession word a little bit more this week as we look at the Fed's announcement, or do you think that could be a wet blanket on the livestock markets in the coming months? Well, I think we're ca cautiously optimistic as we look at how demand has been so far, and you could speak domestically or on the export market, I think it's held up. Right now, when you compare beef and pork, there's some obvious differences there. But I think when you compare those two meats, we were starting at a bit different place. Um, and so I think that's important to, to put into those contexts. Going forward, it's really going to be about how much higher prices we can push off to those consumers, both exports as, as well as domestic. Supplies are tightening, so it's all about are we going to see enough higher prices to hold that, that value and the, keep the pie where it's at. Is there any indication that we will see demand wane a bit? I mean, when you look at the CPI, you look at those meat numbers, they're not coming down. The price is still up. It looks like consumers are willing to pay for that. But how long can that last, especially as you get closer to that Christmas time frame? I think we're starting to see a few chinks in the armor, possibly. Um, I think it's too early to say, you know, we're going to see a downturn in demand. But we haven't seen the, the appreciation we've seen the last several quarters. And so when I look at what we've seen in the first quarter of 2022 compared to the second quarter of 2022, we are a lot more optimistic early in the year than we, than we are now. So I think we may see some of those factors weighing on, on demand uh, of consumers. I wanna point out exports too. We gotta go back to remembering that currency really matters. Mm. And, and that I think is a big concern as we look at South Korea, Japan, um, and the, their currency relative to the U.S. dollar, I think there's some big implications there possibly for exports, and we're starting to see some of that play out in the data as well. We've been talking about the situation in Ukraine since it happened, you know, in that February and then in that March time frame about what possibly could, could happen to production in Ukraine. Are you more concerned, though, about 2023's crop than you were 2022? Uh, possibly, and I'm going to phrase it this way. What we figured out over the course of the past six months is, one, Ukrainian farmers are amazing in the ability to plant within a war zone, but two, they've been able to move that crop out of the country as well. And so the big key as we're looking forward over the next six months is the trade deal that Ukraine and Russia reached with the UN. Does that continue to hold? Because if it does, we'll continue to see some crop at least come out of the Ukraine. But what do signs point to right now when it comes to that trade deal when we know that Putin has been vocal lately about about that. He's been vocal, but he hasn't done anything about it yet, which is surprising to me yet, because normally he likes to follow up his language with a little action. We haven't seen any action yet. All right. Well, I appreciate you both being here, Chad Lee. Thank you so much for joining us from Iowa State. We need to take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Well, it didn't seem pests were a major problem this year, but it was 2021 that grasshoppers, army worms, and others really ate into yields. But artificial intelligence could soon change the game for farmers, not only trying to identify pests, but also creating a game plan to attack those unwanted pests in your field. 
In fields across Iowa, pests are on the prowl year after year. It is first of a kind in the sense we are trying to cater the needs of farmer by putting these uh, management practices or strategies uh, linked with uh, insect detection. And as pests continue to be a problem, a smartphone app could soon detect and diagnose on the spot. This is uh, not just an identification app. It will give the management practices to how to control if it is a pest. And if it's a beneficial, they don't have to do any control. The goal is to make the app user friendly for farmers to help make pest management simpler as well. They go in field, they take a picture, and in real time it tells which insect it is. It is a beneficial insect or it's a harmful insect. And it also gives them scientific name and common name of insect. Able to already identify 2,000 pests today, their work is far from over. Early next year, uh, we will be able to identify around 4,000 insect pests, which is a huge number. And it will do so through the power of artificial intelligence. We use uh, a concept called um, deep learning, right, which is, uh, which is the, uh, a subset of um, uh, artificial intelligence where we collect these images and we pass it through uh, a network, if you will, and the network is essentially extracting out different kinds of features of these, of, of, of the images and then making a decision on which class, insect class it belongs to. Doubling the amount of insects it can detect can only be done through millions of images. I think uh, the large amount of data that we have, we have been collecting, both from sensors, both from images, from drones and from citizen sciences, has provided a wonderful opportunity for us to train new kinds of artificial intelligence models on this data so that we can facilitate decision support and enable farmers to do what they do uh, better, faster, uh, in an easier way. While creating an app like this sounds simple, all the data can be noisy. Different people use different kinds of cameras, different people use different kinds of phones at different locations at different resolutions. So how do you account for all those things while you design an insect detection app is something that we have to deal with. Another challenge, the sheer amount of data. With some pests having 100,000 images, others maybe just 20. There are some beetles that look very, very similar, but they actually belong to different classes. So how do you... Uh, distinguish between two similar looking images but they actually belong to widely different classes where one class could be a beneficial pest insect and other other class could be actually a, a pest uh, perhaps an invasive species. The app will help farmers solve pest problems not only today but also tomorrow. We don't know about these new crops which insect uh, pest or diseases can be a problem so if we have this library of insect pests and uh, we can use the smartphone app to, to identify uh, timely and mitigate I think this will be a game changer for future for, for sure in future. And as these researchers say there's still a lot of work to be done, this technology could soon harvest solutions across the U.S. So this is one of the things where artificial intelligence, data science, and the large amount of data that we're collecting actually all come together in coming up with these products that, that actually make sense and, and, uh, and might have a good impact on, on, on the end user. 4,000 pests by next year. Just amazing. Well, when we come back, spraying for weeds has caused quite a stir in the past several years. John Phipps has customer support next. Well, pesticide and herbicide applications have come under scrutiny by not just some in the federal government, but also the public. John Phipps has customer support this week. This is from Rita Stahl in Helena, Montana. We have a farmer next door that sprays at least seven to nine times a season and has been planting beans for the last 18 years with no rotation. 
Is there any way it can be regulated on having to inform us what they are spraying for and when so me and my grandkids are not outside and are pre-warned? They sprayed this uh, about 8 a.m. this morning and it is 3.40 and I still feel it in my eyes. I know I am highly allergic to some of this stuff, but it's not fair. Rita, thanks for your email, and I'm sorry for your difficulties. Uh, there is no requirement I know of to announce when and what will be sprayed next to you on some other property. That said, operators have a duty to respect you and your property rights. If you haven't already done so, speak to the farmer. He may be unthinkingly unaware of your issues. There are other actions you can take. First, go to the Montana Department of Agriculture. They have instructions on how to lodge a complaint about this sort of problem and will it take appropriate action. Second, gather as much information as possible, including the dates and times of the spraying, and especially get your camera or your phone and get a video of them spraying next to you and document any damage to your gardens or plants. You can place simple border markers like those snow marking sticks along your boundary line to discourage overlap. If the farmer is spraying that often and has been planting continuous beans, many of those applications could be fungicides and maybe some insecticides. While they can be irritants and allergens, they are relatively safe when applied correctly. Unlike weed control, leaving a cushion around the edge of your property with those uh, chemicals uh, costs little yield and won't leave an irritating border of weeds. Spraying during the calm early winds of morning is a good thing outside of the noise. Finally, it's possible that the operator in question is what we in the profession refer to as a jerk. If he owns the land next to you, it's virtually impossible to find a remedy without outside intervention. However, if the farmer is renting the property, contact the landowner. Communication from a landlord can be very effective. Regardless of whether the farmer applies a spray himself or hires a professional operator, the responsibility to do no harm to his neighbors resides always with him. Thanks, John. Well, up next, a new lab at Iowa State is truly a powerhouse. We'll give you a sneak peek of the lab that isn't even open to the public yet. That's next. Closed captioning on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by BASF. BASF, helping you to do the biggest job on Earth. Iowa State University has a clear goal to become a leader in the ag equipment industry, not only with developing new technology, but also technology that's more efficient. And Iowa State may be well on its way thanks to a lab that will open next month. Welcome to the Off-Highway Vehicle Chassis Dynamometer Lab at Iowa State University. Called Dyno Lab for short, this large lab is geared toward work with off-highway equipment both agricultural and construction. It's designed to measure the power that a vehicle can produce through its wheels onto the ground. The interest is driven by making off-highway vehicles more efficient. So we're interested in taking the fuel, measuring the fuel into the vehicle, and then understanding how well the vehicle does 
and converting that to useful propulsion energy. The Dyno Lab can load and test different aspects of a vehicle. These are the motors that are used to load the vehicle. To understand where the power is going through it. And they're able to load up to 600 horsepower uh, for each corner. As it acts almost like a souped up treadmill, but with rollers. So this allows us to do studies of uh, efficiency of converting that energy and the fuel into uh, propulsive energy. We can also measure uh, PTO in the back. Uh, there's a PTO dyno also, so we can measure that. And we're developing a hydraulic dyno as well. The first test run in the lab was done with an agricultural sprayer. There's six rollers for each one, six of these 20 inch rollers, and then there's a smaller roller right here. But this lab can handle equipment with either tires or tracks. When we have a wheeled vehicle, we lower this one as it is right now, and we'll cradle the wheel right in that, in that kind of well there. When it is uh, a tracked vehicle, we'll raise that one up, and so it will create as flat of a, pat, you know, a platform as possible. What makes the Dino Lab so special is the fact it's one of a kind in North America. What makes it unique is its flexibility, its level of power that it's able to uh, load to. There will be similar units inside of some companies. Some of the manufacturers will have that, but having something like that, this at a public institution is pretty unique. So just how much power can it handle? 100 megawatts worth. That's like the power used for a thousand homes. We can absorb more power than any vehicles today can produce. So we're planning for the future. For a project that started just over five years ago, it's now on the edge of running on all cylinders soon. We, we really want to be a leader in the ag equipment industry uh, in terms of uh, developing new technology, being able to, to develop technology that's more useful for agriculture and uh, really moving the needle ahead on things like energy efficiency, functionality, all those things for uh, agricultural machinery. Now, while the Dino Lab will be fully operational by next month, the grand opening is planned for November 17th, right here in Ames. Well, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Thank you so much for joining us, and a big thank you to Bex for making another college road show stop a reality this week. From all of us at U.S. Farm Report, thank you so much for watching, and be sure to join us next week as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.